0: Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode of investing in integrity, we are thrilled to welcome Kathy Kraninger, the vice president of regulatory affairs at Solidus Labs and the former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or CFPB. We love bringing diverse perspectives onto our podcast, and today's conversation was really a treat. Kathy has a unique vantage point, having spent a number of years in the public sector before moving into the private sector and the crypto space. Please note that this episode was recorded a few weeks ago, so some of the recent economic and political news we mentioned has evolved a bit since. I hope you find this discussion as enlightening as our team did. And now, without further delay, we bring you Kathy Craninger. Kathy Craninger, it is such a pleasure to have you here today on the Investing in Integrity podcast. There's so much to dive into. Before we begin, how are you and where are you calling in from?
1: Ross, it is fantastic to be in conversation with you. I am here in Washington, D.C., actually home for a few weeks, which is nice change of pace from all of the travel. There are definitely a lot of conferences that are talking about crypto and regulations. So I've been busy uh, getting around the world to talk about those topics, but great to be with you and excited to be available to your listeners too. It's been a while since I've been in front of college students and otherwise, you know, students in general.
0: Yeah, we're super excited to have you. Our audience, our student audience, our young professional audience, the senior investor audience, everyone's super excited about this episode. Since we connected at Milken, I've been really, really looking forward to the interview. Glad that, shout out to Chris Campbell, our mutual friend that made the introduction. Chris, if you're listening, thank you very much for the intro. And Kathy, I'd imagine, especially given the recent market environment with the collapse of a lot of cryptocurrencies with... FTX, their founder, right? Sam buying tons of companies. There's never been a time where people want to talk about regulation and risk mitigation and crypto as they do now. So excited and grateful to have some of your time when you must be in really high demand. With that said, we'd love to jump right in. Set the stage. I could list your resume. I think incredibly impressive, but we don't often get to hear executive stories, like real off resume stories. We'd love to just start off, if you can share your career and your story some of the choices you've made throughout your life that have led you to this point and what ended up getting you interested in financial regulation.
1: Thank you for that opportunity, Ross. It's been a while, I think, again, since I've also mentioned that. I tend to live in the moment too. So I feel like I, I've never been in another industry besides finance. And certainly I've never talked about topics outside of crypto, but but I've actually only been working in the digital asset space for a little more than a year. So And in terms of financial services, definitely worked around the industry and then as a financial regulator and engaged in financial services policy for about five years in Washington prior to this job. So it is a bit of a long career, but it's largely a public service story and a love of Washington story. So I actually remember my first trip to D.C. being a very, very young child. My cousin worked at the Pentagon. And we lived in Philadelphia, so it was a pretty easy hop-skip down here. But I loved the mall. I loved this city from the first time I saw it. And it was one of those things. I know I want to live here. And my parents, obviously voters, civically active, but not politically active at all. And so it was really me loving history, loving government, really wanting to be engaged in public policy that led me to Washington. I lived overseas in the Peace Corps, too. I couldn't get the international bug out. So I'd say between the love of public policy and trying to get things done for the American people in general, really loving this country and trying to make it the best place it could possibly be to help people actually reach the American dream, and then also loving travel and loving to talk about international standards and global opportunities to standardize and really coalesce in terms of fighting financial crime as I spent different parts of my career doing in Washington. So really split time between the executive branch and the legislative branch in a number of different positions. But I'd say the the glue around a lot of the things I worked on were really big government programs and risk management You know, really, how do you make tough decisions in the face of, I think, even high consequence, low probability risks? And my career in Washington actually started at the Department of Transportation on 9-11. And I was working for then-Secretary Norm Mineta, who was the Democrat in, in Bush's cabinet, Uh, just a phenomenal public career and a great leader and mentor. Uh, He recently passed away, so I've gotten very nostalgic about my time there and working for him, but great opportunity to work with people again who were just motivated to do the right thing for the country. and It was about the right policy and He often said to us, too, you know, the politics matters because it's how you get things done. It's how you win people over. It's how you convince them, too, certainly. But you start with the right policy and what makes sense. And then you you know, work your way through those things and make policy and politics align. And so that's the other thing that I've definitely sought to do in my career in D.C. So really had some fantastic mentors and folks I worked for and and with over, over a long public service career. How I got to the CFPB was, frankly, again, those same dynamics, having a reputation as someone who worked across the aisle, who got things done in government, who really thought about how government should operate the right way. I care about process, certainly, and really the engagement dimensions around government. You really do have to work with the industry you're regulating, understand the public interests, and work through all of the things that it takes to get things done here. So I can note that as the only Republican Senate-confirmed leader of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it was an interesting time because so many Republicans had frankly stated their opposition to the creation of that agency in the Dodd-Frank Act, and they really didn't think it was necessary. And so there are many people who were on record as wanting to abolish the agency, thinking that it shouldn't be in place. And that is part of how I ended up there. It was very much, as I said, I'm a good government person. Congress created the agency. It has an important mission to protect consumers in the financial products for consumers, whether it's credit, mortgages, and loans, student loans, which I know you want to talk about. So it's an important mission as far as I'm concerned, and it's in law. So there is a responsibility to carry that out. And the conversations that I had around that are really what led me to that role. And At an interesting time, too, we had, frankly, a great team, the economic and financial oversight team during that time period in 2019 and 2020, the Fed, the FDIC, the OCC, SEC, Treasury, the CFTC, really those members of the Financial Stability Oversight Committee at the time. The conversations that we had as we were looking at what was a really great economic conditions And then you had the pandemic. So the response to the pandemic is definitely something that shaped my time and my tenure at the agency. And then I left in in 2021 when the transition happened uh, into the Biden administration. And that's when I looked for private sector opportunities and really did find this crypto space pretty exciting. So long-winded answer with a lot of different aspects to the career. I know we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the time at the CFPB, but those are some of the reasons why I got there.
0: Thanks for sharing, Kathy. It's a very unique story, your career and experience. You have in the past mentioned that your experiences at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, among other government organizations, helped prepare you for your role in crypto regulation Curious if you can expand on that. And I'm also curious if there were any unexpected challenges you faced in the new role as well.
1: So definitely an appreciation and understanding for the roles of the SEC and the CFTC. So as I noted, I had really five years in financial services regulation and policy roles. That started at the Office of Management and Budget. I was working with the SEC and the CFTC then, Had done a little bit of work with them over time on cybersecurity dimensions that affected financial services. So there were some things tangentially over the years working with those agencies, but not around their core mission. And so that's really the turning point, I would say, is that five years with talking about housing finance policy, talking about, as I said, the things that affect capital markets and and working with the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, the OCC, and as an FDIC board member being at the CFPB. So I would say it was that exposure to the way the independent agencies operate from the OMB position, and then also from the CFPB as one of them. It was a different type of conversation than a lot of the things that end up going to the president's desk, because you do have a lot of authority and autonomy at those agencies, at least with respect to their own purview. So the opportunity to think about those impacts and focus on that mission. That's what I would say with respect to preparing me for this market. I would say there's some parallels from my early days uh, creating the Department of Homeland Security too. frankly, to the CFPB and then to crypto, because it was a whole new world. That's part of the dimension of crypto. So I've now had several iterations of my career where I was involved at the very start of what does the law require now? There are pieces and parts of it out there. Obviously, the same things in the crypto space. You have securities laws. We'll not get too deep into the debate of which tokens are securities, because that's certainly obviously a big discussion. But there are some, clearly. And if it is a security, securities law applies. And you have obviously an entire ecosystem around what a currency is, and and requirements there for FinCEN licensing, and at the state le- level, and you know dimensions around payments programs and regulating payments systems across the globe. So all of those things do apply, but there are aspects around digital assets that are just they really are new and novel. The way the technology works is new and novel, and so understanding how exactly to regulate that, particularly without, if you talk about decentralized finance, where there aren't necessarily intermediaries, how that is regulated is totally different. So as I said, we're really at the cutting edge with the CFPB around How do you define some of the the products that you're working with as fintech comes into play? Where does this fit in? How do you approach government agencies when you're actually coming up with something new from a a business standpoint? And I didn't talk about what Solidus Labs does, but I I should do that for a minute. The great thing about this company that I work for is that we're an infrastructure company. We are actually in the risk monitoring space, and our role is really to help companies, help compliance teams mitigate their risk in trading digital assets. And we're really experts in trading behavior and watching for manipulation and watching for fraud, helping platforms, broker-dealers, market makers understand the risk in the venues that they're trading in and in the trading activity they're engaging in. So I'm not the one that is approaching the SEC or the CFTC with a business concept at the moment, but the experience at the CFPB of having fintech companies come to us and having them present questions they had around how the law exactly would apply to them, wanting to comply, wanting to ensure that they are providing the disclosures they need to provide, mitigating the risks to consumers, but offering something that is new and novel and different and consumer beneficial. Those are the types of conversations that I think were very valuable to have been part of and to understand as I'm approaching this space where there are the same types of questions and issues. You know, How exactly would you register under SEC's licensing regimes? And certainly if you are not actually trading in securities, why would you have to do that? So there are some <laughs> legitimate questions that need to be worked through on that front and some for Congress to solve too.
0: That is so interesting. You mentioned the student loans crisis right, earlier. A lot of our listeners are college students or recent college grads. We'd love to hear your perspective on student lending and the nearly $2 trillion student debt crisis. What did the CFPB do under your leadership to protect students and student lenders? And what do you think it needs to do going forward?
1: So a few things of note, I think that the biggest issue to at least acknowledge is that the federal government took this on in the not too distant past, frankly, and that is part of the challenge. So the Department of Education is really, again, you know, 90 percent of the loans are through them and the policies and requirements are their purview. But I would say they turn and look to Congress. (laughs) So in many respects, Congress created the system and some of the dynamics that we're left with. But if you take one bigger step back, we're also talking about some massive loans that are easy to get because people believed education was important. And so the dynamics that would normally be at play with respect to private sector lending, the disclosures that need to be provided, the understanding of really of the recipient of that loan, that it is in fact a loan that they are actually having to pay back. So many students and the conversations that were had Uh, Particularly early on, I'd like to say many universities have corrected that now, but it's a conversation between the student and the university, and the the presentation of information about this, it sounds very much like a grant and not like a loan. So so even the terms and conditions around the loan, that was a big part of things early on, and, and there are definitely people that didn't think about that. And that changes your mindset when you recognize that you are taking this on. Now, many of us believe that, and I took out loans for law school in particular, so I knew full well what I was getting into. Thankfully, I was working full-time at the same time too and and paid a lot of it along the way, scrimping and and saving and everything else. But it was pretty clear to me that it was a loan at the time and, and I was taking this debt burden on, but I had made the calculus that it was worth it for the law degree. So I'll say there are two facts. One is if the degree is not actually conferred, if you do not finish school when you take on those loans, that is a huge part of those that find themselves underwater. It is a dramatic number. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips anymore, but that is a big part of it. And there are myriad reasons why people, obviously, they have hardships in life that come about. They decide college isn't cut out for them. But it really is one of those things that if you decide in advance and don't take on the loan, When you think you might not actually want to follow through on the degree or might face other hardships, or maybe there's another way to go about this, whether it's junior college or otherwise, that is a huge part of of the population that are, are underwater. Another dimension of this, and I'm glad to see universities like Arizona State, I think, I hope not University of Arizona, it's one of them that had just a really focused effort around making sure that students graduate, that they graduate in four years and not longer. So that's a, a big part of this dimension too. But the last thing I'd say is student debt can't be addressed through bankruptcy as well. So a lot of the regular mechanisms that people would be allowed to address when they face financial hardship, you can't actually you know, dispose of that debt through that process. And so that is also a dimension. I think there are some real things that we could address as a country if we address some of those things.
0: What an incredibly complicated set of factors to try to consider. I remember when I was at Piper Sandler, I did study 4,000 companies. And when I came to study the financial sector to really try to understand the inner workings and intricacies of these hundreds and hundreds of financial companies. And I remember vividly the moment when it hit me that our entire financial system is all psychological based on expectations and leverage. And I thought there's so much debt and leverage in our system, we're self-imposing these small and large cycles, right? Of booms and busts through our, our inability to manage our expectations and the leverage we take. And obviously we're seeing some of the results of that with the Fed increasing the Fed funds rate rapidly. I want to shift into another topic, enforcement, and some of the ways the CFPB holds companies accountable, including through settlement cash payouts to consumers. In 2021, the LA Times reported that under your leadership, the highest annual consumer settlement total was $783 million. That was much less compared to the nearly $6 billion of total cash returned to consumers in 2014, which was the high point under the Obama era. Um, as you know, the CFPB also received a record number of complaints in 2020, more than 50% from 2019, and over five times as many from the Obama era average. For people who look at those numbers and think, what's going on? Why were there comparatively so little cash settlements returned to consumers when the complaint numbers were so high?
1: Well, here's quite a few things to unpack with that and all you know, legitimate questions. I actually was very adamant in my entire career, but at the CFPB about being transparent about these types of statistics and making sure we put them out there, but making sure we put them out as apples to apples too. It takes years really in many cases to actually get enforcement cases. You have to investigate them. Obviously you have to decide that they meet the thresholds for actually litigating. You may you may actually get a settlement before you even have to go to litigation. So the timeline on any individual enforcement action is very much part of this puzzle. And then you get to the types of enforcement cases that you know are likely to settle. And unfortunately, there are quite a few cases out there of entities that are overseas or or outside the U.S. jurisdiction that are engaging in fraud that is harming Americans. And that's one of those things where you have to actually do consumer education as well. So I would say the the protection of consumers with the authorities, the CFPB had, enforcements that, that last pointy tip of the spear, but behind that, you of course have supervision and you have the regulations and you have education and they all have to work together. So it was my philosophy, frankly, that those are, all four of those things need to work together and we need to push on it. So that's one aspect is, that they all need to work together. It's it's not just about enforcement. It's not just about the enforcement amount of money. The second thing is just also that you did have a change of administration. And what you had was a, a very real push, of course, to clear through enforcement cases and get as many resolved as you could possibly get at the end of my predecessor's term. And you also had, again, some differences in philosophy around the cases, So when I came in, the number of investigations underway was actually quite limited in the scope of things. Again, given that you're trying to clean things out, that you're setting a new tempo and setting a new philosophy. So I'll say the last year of my tenure was actually, I will have to check it for you, Ross, because I I know it was definitely still a high year. I think it was the the second highest year in terms of enforcement cases and, and money returned but we'll get back on, on that. We could do it as show notes, but but it was still amongst the highest. And again, I don't like that to be like the metric that, that matters because there are so many things that vary about cases and how much money is actually you know, entitled to consumers as a result of those cases. But I note that. And then the last thing is the dimension around complaints. 2020 was a very unusual year, obviously for many reasons, <laughs> including the pandemic and a lot of the challenges we dealt with were well-intentioned companies that were trying to appropriately respond to consumers and the issues they were facing, largely around granting deferrals, complying with the CARE Act, and a lot of the changes that Congress had put into place around student loans, around mortgages. So there were a lot of things that had to do with that communication process. And we were on top of that immediately. We worked very closely with consumer advocacy groups, with the industry to try to clarify as much of that as we could and actually did our own ad campaigns around those with fellow regulators at the federal and state level and with the industry to really get clear messages out. But I will say that's definitely a dynamic in the complaints data from 2020.
0: I appreciate you sharing and clarifying. On one hand, I'm thinking, gosh, I have to do better research and better understand all these metrics before I post questions. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of other people could look at all the data and ask the same question. And so I'm glad that we, we had the opportunity to clarify a lot of things there. So I appreciate you sharing. With that, I would love to dive into crypto and crypto regulation. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing investor and consumer protection in the crypto industry in particular?
1: So I think some of these things are a dynamic of this being a new and technology-driven space. I can relate to those who perhaps hear anything technical and just shut down and assume they can't understand it. So you have a purview of things and and that was true when the internet first came out too and and some of the gaming dimensions it's a small set of consumers who are very tech savvy who are early adopters who get it who are who are all over it and blockchain has some of those dimensions as I talk to a lot of my family members too they their eyes glaze over as you're talking about Blockchain technology and how it works, and really being akin to the early internet. And even understanding, as you talk about the digital asset markets, you need those markets and those tokens because those tokens are actually the means of building and securing the blockchain itself. So, you know, it's a really technologically underlying market there in terms of the, the technology being an integral part of the markets. And so that's one aspect that needs to be dealt with. And just as we thought at the, at the CFPB about this, how do we actually address different consumers? Consumers' tolerance for friction is fairly low. There's no doubt about that in many dimensions as, as you get to, again, younger consumers who don't understand why there's all of this paperwork and all of these things that they just check the box and don't read. So it was... How do we really provide consumers with the information that they need to make the best decision for themselves at the right time without bogging them down with all kinds of other things? And that's true in the conversation around the digital asset markets, too. I think there are some pretty exciting things working around disclosures in this space that you know hopefully we'll be a model a lot of opportunities there so i i did spend a decent amount of time at the cfpb on disclosures so i think there're some exciting things that again as we think about technology and disclosures we can do this better and actually give people the information they need to make you know the best decisions for themselves is one key area. Another really, as I I mentioned already, is that the ability to actually interact with companies that are coming up with novel things and and understanding that and helping them think through how the law applies to them and, and what they need to do to comply. And in the case of the digital asset industry, definitely the exciting conversations around what changes can we propose? You know, we've got 50 i think there are more than 50 bills at this point i can't remember i've lost count of how many bills have been introduced in congress around digital assets right now and that's true across the globe there are legislative regimes draft regulations that we're looking at daily the european union just is putting the final touches on mika which is about market conduct in these markets too so It's just an exciting time to be part of this. And I'd say my history of, again, working in Congress, understanding how to write laws, writing regulations as a financial regulator, doing it in the interagency. This space of crypto as well involves multiple regulators at the federal level, state level, internationally. So all of those dimensions of understanding how government works and how these processes work. Truly beneficial to my engagement in helping this industry think through the way things should look.
0: Thanks, Kathy. I appreciate you unpacking that. Another challenge that we've been seeing in the market is a lack of clarity on who's regulating cryptocurrency. We've seen this in a lot of different ways. Chris Larson, the executive chairman of Ripple, is like one of my dearest mentors, a big supporter of us at SOF. Ripple's been facing this with a lot of headlines. We've talked about it a lot. Very recently, the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act was another important development for crypto regulation proposed by the Senate Agricultural Committee. We continue to see the SEC and the CFTC jostling to be the core regulatory body of crypto. What do you make of this and the recently proposed DCCPA?
1: No, I think it is a great step forward as have been a few of the other bills here too. So you noted the Senate Agriculture Committee came together in a bipartisan way to introduce that bill just yesterday. So that Senator Stabenow and Bozeman as well as Booker and Thune who co-sponsored the introduction you also have a House agriculture bill that's a bipartisan bill that's been around since 2020 and was reintroduced in this Congress, as well as what is a more famous bill, I suppose, by Senators Lummis and Gillibrand. But again, all bipartisan. I think the thing that with respect to the CFTC SEC dimensions that all of those bills recognized, they really are moving out in a direction that's endorsing the CFTC as a the spot market overseer. And there are different definitions around that, but generally speaking, it's, it's recognition that a lot of the tokens are commodities and that the dynamics around digital asset markets are akin to swaps markets, akin to the FX changes that came into place too in this a couple decades ago. So those are markets that the CFTC oversees And it makes a lot of sense. Now, I will say the SEC, while they don't have that oversight of the spot markets as it's being set up in these bills, still have a huge role because all of them acknowledge that some tokens are securities. And those are going to be subject to the securities laws in the United States. So there is a role for both of them. I think, again, I spent a lot of my career, as I noted in the interagency space of how agencies work together, the CFTC and SEC have been talking about a a joint working group. There was even one of the draft bills that directed them to create a joint working group on digital assets and, and make sure that that has teeth. So you can see that they're going to have to work together. In fact, it comes down to SEC deciding if something's a security. And if it's not, then you've got the CFTC with the responsibility for it. So there's going to be a continued dynamic there and greater clarity will be incredibly useful. I won't comment, I suppose, on the details of the Ripple case, but it's certainly one that, you know, that has reverberations, as does the SEC's insider trading case that just named nine of the tokens as securities. It's a tangential issue in the case itself, but a really massive issue for the industry in terms of grappling with what the SEC is going to declare a security and how that will be resolved, and it's likely through the courts here.
0: Right, right. I'm probably a little bit biased, but having looked at the Ripple case, I definitely think they have a strong case. I think Ripple does, but I have to, again, I have to disclose my own biases and conflicts. Speaking of that, I actually want to kind of zoom back up to hear your thoughts on crypto itself. It's controversial across the globe. CNBC reported on June 18th that $2 trillion in value is wiped up by the crypto market crash. Two weeks prior, a group of 26 technology experts, writers, academics wrote a letter to Congress saying that they strongly disagree with the narrative that crypto technologies represent a positive financial innovation and are in any way suited to solving the financial problems facing ordinary Americans. Bill Gates said a week later that digital assets are, quote, 100% based on greater fool theory. I will disclose again, I own Ethereum personally, and I also own an NFT that the Coinbase team was kind enough to give me at the Milken conference. What do you think about this backlash and what is your opinion generally on crypto as an innovation?
1: I can tell you that I am a believer in terms of the positive impact that blockchain technology is going to have on society. And I feel like, you know, we're back in 1990 and talking about what the internet is is good for and what that's... I mean, the the entire world of e-commerce, social media, everything that we had no idea of, and there were definitely some visionaries, including some of the people you just mentioned, who totally saw it and knew exactly what this technology was good for. As I noted at the start when I was talking about digital assets, digital asset markets are, again, an integral part of the development of blockchain technology, that's part of the challenge. And I think that's getting missed by people. And you also have all the uncertainty leading to things that would be probably safer financial products for the retail public to get involved in that are precluded from being made available in the US, like spot Bitcoin ETF. At the same time, I am sympathetic to this because you do have people who clearly are speculating, I guess are are involved in speculation. And what you want to see is for retail investors to understand the level of risk that they are getting involved in. And right now in the crypto industry, it's hard to segregate what is riskier with what is more more mature. And there there is in fact actually after almost a decade of some of these companies there are more mature platforms there are you know entities that are actually doing it right that are in fact registered under current at least under the CFTC or under state licensing regimes under the New York bit license for example and internationally where market integrity is a requirement so it's not just you have to report financial crimes and comply with anti-money laundering statutes, but that you actually are doing other things around fraud and manipulation. And as I said, internationally, that's a big deal, and that's what Solidus Labs, you know, my company does, is identify those things. So we have responsible market participants across the globe who are, you know, implementing those important protections for investors, for their own businesses, because it's also smart business to prevent fraud. And that's something that I think doesn't get the attention it should. But at the same time, a downturn gives you the opportunity to really separate those who are responsible, who are going to build the right infrastructure, who are going to be responsible market participants from those who are unfortunately scammers. And and frankly, traditional finance has not solved that problem either.
0: I appreciate you unpacking that a little bit. And I think you make a lot of really salient points. And speaking of some of your hopes for how the industry becomes stronger, safer, there's less risk. Can you tell us more about the crypto market integrity coalition that Solidus Labs launched earlier this year? What's its purpose and what do you hope it'll accomplish?
1: Thanks for asking that question. It's near and dear to my heart. And exactly what I just described is what we're trying to do with the Crypto Market Integrity Coalition, or CIMIC. It's really about identifying those responsible market participants. They're signing on to a pledge. They're coming forward and speaking publicly about the terms and conditions of use on their their platforms, what their business practices are really trying to share with the public the types of disclosures and information that they should expect to see from responsible market participants so that they are looking for those things. And when they don't see them, that they're recognizing that that is a riskier and more speculative activity that they're engaging in. One of the other challenges, and it's a challenge for regulators across the globe, is where companies are operating from. There are no jurisdictional boundaries in terms of what you can find on the Internet. And so, again, people understanding that it matters when you see something has been chartered or licensed and where they're operating from and what they're offering you in terms of financial products and services. So I think all of those things are are important. And that's what we're trying to accomplish with Cimic, as I said, is, is really making it clear who responsible entities are and collaborating on things that are gonna make the ecosystem safer.
0: Amazing, thank you. And wishing you and the team the best in the endeavor. Hope that the industry is very supportive and that you see an enormous uptake in that effort. It sounds like it's something we obviously need. And I'm glad that you and your team have done it and have started that initiative. I would love to ask you two rapid fire questions before we wrap up our interview today. So number one, for those who would want to explore Potential careers in public service or regulation, what rapid fire advice would you offer them?
1: Well, the first is definitely dive in. If you have the interest, that is the most important thing and the inclination. And so I encourage anyone who wants to do it. It is incredibly rewarding. It is incredibly challenging. There are definitely days that I was banging my head against the wall, but really the most rewarding things that I've ever been part of, I was able to do for, uh, you know, in my government service and met incredibly amazing, smart, capable people, that's what changes the world is actually getting involved and rolling up your sleeves.
0: Thanks, Kathy. My second question, you've been generous with your time here at Scholars of Finance. Here we are spending almost an hour together on this podcast. You were super kind to spend time with me at the Milken Conference. We're here on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow of all the requests on your time you get what made scholars of finance stand out to you and what made you choose to invest in this mission a little bit
1: well ross you're a great salesman and spokesperson so that's that's definitely first and foremost and i'll give the the shout out to chris as well since he introduced us but really it is about reaching different audiences and and students and and younger people in general i was a teacher at heart in terms of how i was trained And I loved interacting with, you know, again, the energy level of students and being in a college environment in general and ever learning, frankly, too. So I think the integrity dimensions, I'll admit I'm going on a bit now, but I'll say the integrity dimensions of of the mission that you all have launched with Scholars of Finance is also critically important. You can't actually do everything through the law and regulation. And I had someone recently telling me that ethics was all about, you know, what's in the law and what's in the regulations. And I was incredibly upset by that. That is definitely not the way we create an ethical society.
0: We It starts with us being good people who are purpose-driven, have clarity on our core values and are unwavering and uncompromising and upholding those values my own personal opinion. I wanna say thank you, Kathy. I know we're at time. Thank you for the time today. Thank you for this interview. Hope that we can have you back again in the future. And just look forward to continuing the dialogue with our students, with our community with you, wishing you the best in everything at Solidus Labs in the months ahead. Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Ross. It was fantastic to be with you.
0: Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, Please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.